0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Forest Health 101, where we discuss everything forest health. I'm your host, Damien, and today we're talking about molecular tools for diagnosis and surveillance of blood pathogens with Dr. Katerina Bilari. Katerina is an associate professor with the University of Georgia, focusing on fungal pathogens and diagnosis using molecular tools. So let's dive right into it. Katerina Villari, associate professor of the University of Georgia. Welcome. Thanks for joining today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Damien.
0: Absolutely. I'm uh, really excited to talk about this today. Uh, we're going to be diving into molecular tools for um, diagnosis and surveillance of plant pathogens, specifically talking about one, one particular method that you your lab has been working a lot, uh, which is called LAMP. And it's kind of like a little bit different from the typical, you know, PCR that we usually would hear about. So before we dive into that, please start by... Talking about your lab, what are your main research projects or research lines that you guys work with?
1: Okay, yeah. So uh, in my lab, we work in different direction. uh, Different members of the lab work on different projects. But I work a lot with uh, host-resistant mechanisms. So the metabolomic part, how do trees respond when there is a pest or a pathogen, all their defense mechanisms, including secondary metabolites, uh, mostly secondary metabolites. And also a little bit of resistance selection. How do how can we use this chemical response to help us identify uh, resistant families to a certain uh, disease or to a certain insect group? And this is one component of the work in my lab. The other, it's a lot on diagnostics. And so um, we develop tools to uh, advance diagnostics and possibly bring it out of the lab, like portable tools, like the lamp that we're gonna be talking mm-hmm. today and um, other more sequencing-based tools, like a little bit of uh, metabarcoding coding, or right now we're trying a little bit of nanopore sequencing. And so looking more at the whole community of microbes associated with a type of uh, symptomatic or non uh tree. So completely different direction, more defense response-based and, and chemistry-based or more molecular. So we kind of uh, tackle a little bit of both those um, aspects in the lab.
0: So take us a little bit to the beginning and this it's going to be a very philosophical question, but how do you end up working in forest pathology?
1: That's a big one. <laughs> I uh, I always knew I liked the um, natural resources or STEM. I was actually, I'm sure, to go in physics or forestry. So those were my two choices when I when I started college and I ended up forestry. I think I would have liked physics as well. I tend to get passionate on whatever I do. And um, with the forestry, when I started the forestry school back in Italy, I graduated, I did all my education and graduated in Italy. I quickly realized I love the forestry world, but I really love the forest biology part. And even though I did it and, and, and enjoyed it, um, the, all the forest business, all the procurement part, it was interesting, but it was not my gig, let's put it that way. And so with the forest biology component, I, I liked forest health a lot, both entomology and pathology. I I was in contact with both professors at the time and I needed a senior thesis project and I kind of inquired where there was availability. I could have been up in a forest entomology lab, uh, there was a space in forest pathology and that's how I started. I did my senior thesis in forest pathology and then I kept working with the same professor as a lab worker for a while and then I did my masters with them and um, that was my beginning of a, as a pathologist but again forest health in general has always been my passion so even my PhD, it's actually from an entomology department in uh, University of Padua, working on fungi associated with insects. So I always worked at the interaction between insect pathogens and the host plant. So it's kind of they're a different department, yes, but it's all one thing. Forest health.
0: So let's let's start talking about uh, diagnostics, right? So when we think about diagnostics in forest pathology, for example, there are. Uh, different methods, even before we get into the details of LAMP, but um, can you talk a little bit about the different options that we have when we think about uh, diagnostics in, in pathology?
1: Yeah, sure. So, well, the first thing you could do diagnostic with is just with your eyes. I mean, you are in the field, you recognize symptoms or signs of something, and sometimes if you're lucky, there are certain diseases that you're really able to just diagnose just by looking at. There are certain, it's like, well, this is yeah. there's no need to do further analysis. But most of the time, that's not the case. And many symptoms are overlapping, are similar. Many diseases will cause the same symptoms. And so there's very often the need to do a little bit more of investigation. And so what I would do in that case is collect samples. And from there, you can go either with the molecular testing way or the classic um, isolation method. So you bring the tissue back and you try to isolate the fungus out little bit to have a better idea of what's going on. Isolation are still a very powerful tool. I don't think we could go completely without it, but they are very time consuming. And not all pathogens likes to grow on the same type of media. So sometimes uh, there are many fastidious organisms that will never grow on media to start with. And so just relying on isolation methods is just not an option anymore. It's, it's still a valuable steps and process that it's good to keep using, but you always, most of the time, have to um, do it beside molecular together with molecular methods. And so if you're lucky enough, you could do molecular methods directly from plant tissues, but many times you will have to isolate and then do molecular methods on whatever isolates you have. And all of this is very time consuming. So that's why I like to try to develop tools that could kind of shorten this timing and bring the diagnosis out of the needs of of having a lab associated.
0: Yeah, and that's where kind of like LAMP, gets into the game, right? So can you speak about like what exactly LAMP is?
1: Yeah, so LAMP stands for uh, Loop Mediator Isothermal Amplification, which sounds like a complex name, but at the end of the day, it's just amplification of DNA. So nothing very dissimilar from classic PCR, where you have amplification of DNA at the end of it. It's just that it works with a different type of chemistry. And so because of the characteristic of the chemical reaction that happens and then the enzymatic reaction, um, it's more uh, suitable to be brought directly in the field because you don't require cycling. Now for normal PCR, um, for PCR to work, you have to have the cycling. So a change in temperature, cold to hot, to cold to hot, basically. Um, And that requires specific uh, machinery that could do that. While lamp works at the same temperature, uh, the enzyme can work, Straight away doesn't need to have like the opening of the like um, separation of the two chains of the DNA, uh, so it can work as it is. And so you just need something that keeps your sample at sixty-five degrees, which is very achievable. It's mm-hmm. just a hot plate at the end of the day, and and the enzyme works by itself. And at the end, you have a lot of amplified DNA. So that's what your end product of LAMP is: amplification of DNA, no different from PCR, other type of PCR but it just worked with a different enzyme. You have a different type of primers, but your final product is the same. A lot of target amplified product of your uh, DNA of your target, uh, whatever organism you're searching for.
0: Gotcha. And so basically this, uh, so this is still not one type of PCR. This is a completely different method. It's just like runs similar to what a PCR is, right?
1: Yes, it's not, uh, we cannot call it PCR, it it works with a completely different enzymes and the reaction, um, if you like, look at the little video, what happens when you have the lamp reaction, it's completely different from the classic PCR amplification, but the final product, it's something equivalent. It's a lot of amplified DNA of whatever you're searching. I will have different shapes, it doesn't come in single like little band. It has a uh, the final product. It's a mix of different dimensions. Uh, it's called cauliflower structure. It's uh, kind of two dimensionally, very complicated, but from a user point of view, all this doesn't really matter because you don't have to understand exactly what shape it has. You just have a lot of your target DNA. And if you mm-hmm. use visualization method, you're just going to see it either as a fluorescent light? Is there a color change in your reaction? And you don't care what's what chemistry is happening? What you care is that you're able to detect that huge amount of product that has been amplified in uh without the need of a lab basically
0: so yeah and that's basically one of the big benefits right you don't need a specific lab you don't need that thermocycler or a specific machinery to run um the the process what are other benefits about these methods besides you know not really having to do that on the lab is it more accurate for example or yes
1: um it is. It can be very specific because, and here I'm going to get a little bit more technical, but um, normal PCR or real-time PCR uh, starts with two primers, what forward and a reverse. And so you have two regions of about 20 pair of base per primer where you can search to uh, maximize your specificity. So searching for regions that are conserved in your target DNA, but they're different from whatever you don't want to amplify. And so you have... Mm that region there, and even of the primer, not all the length of it is very useful. So you have a very short room to have specificity, to exploit your specificity. While with LAMP, you use up to eight different regions to design your primer set. And so you have a lot more opportunity to take advantage of any potential, say, um, mismatch that it's between your target region and something that you don't want to amplify. And and with that, uh, it you can really enhance specificity. You can achieve way better level of specificity than other parameters just because you have more room to search for those mismatches and um, eight, up to eight. So that's, that's four times more.
0: More specific. So even when you have this sort of specificity uh, using LAMP, is there still room for, you know, non-target amplification or is that something that typically we wouldn't see in something like LAMP?
1: No, uh, you always have the risk of non-target amplification that it's, you know, all enzymatic reaction. None is perfect mm-hmm. for how accurate you try to design it. Uh, but it's usually pretty strong. So um, that, it really depends on how you have designed your primers. It's not, um, you have to be careful of how you select your mismatches. Uh, not all mismatches are as strong as others. So you need to be careful of, and, and that it all goes at like at the design Uh, stage so those are things that uh, my lab would do but the end user would not need to deal with but although
0: yeah Yeah, go ahead ahead.
1: yeah so it's it's um on the design phase you really have to pay attention on on how you position your primers and then another thing that sometimes we don't realize that if we design primers on some of the common regions like ITS, uh, we know the one that are sequenced and deposited, but there might be, might be other copies out there in the genome that we're not aware of, and then it can cross-react. So it's always good to validate. I mean, you always have to validate your assets with a big array of non-target to make sure it doesn't really amplify anything else.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was, I was going to ask about that. So when we think about the, the process of you know, developing this LAMP method for any particular disease, you always start, of course, you know, uh, developing those uh, primers, but then between that and the validation phase, how how that process actually looks like?
1: Yeah, so in a routine like development of lamp assay, you start from the computer. So you get the sequence of your target, you try to align it with as much as similar uh, organism that you can, you really build like a phylogeny tree with whatever is in the surrounding and you're trying to kind of make sure you have representative of all the closest species there, and you start on the computer in silico. Then once you have your primer, you really have to test it in vitro. There's no escape from that. So making sure to validate the primer set that you have designed in a as big as collection as possible of organisms. And it's not just run, random, like, I work with fungi mainly, you know? it's not just random fungi, it has to be those that are taxonomically more closely related with the fungi that you want to target and you want to make sure it doesn't cross-react with the close siblings, let's call it that mm-hmm. way. And other very important thing to test is also any potential other organisms that it's possibly present in your um, host uh, plant. So if you're designing something that it's for pine needles, then you want to make sure you test any other pathogen or any other organism that might be potentially in your pine species needles, because you never know, you'll have to test. And another yeah, you're going to run into always, those for sure. You're going to run yeah. into those. yeah. And sometimes people forget, test your host plant because it might cross react with your own uh, host plant. And that's of course problematic. And uh, so all those validation steps are very, very critical. You, but that's for any molecular test, even normal PCR. This is common practice for all of that. It doesn't change for lump. You do exactly the same validation step that you would do for any other molecular primers-based technique.
0: And and what kind of pathogens has this technique been used or been researched uh, in the last you know, decade? I, I know that you were involved in things like Laura Wilt and more recently Peach Conquer. Uh, how has that be experienced? Kind of like being with with Lamp.
1: Yeah, so um, Lamp has become more and more popular recently. When I started working with Lamp, very very few were doing it. I learned uh, in UK at the time, and um, it was kind of very innovative. Very few people would work with it, but. In the forestry world and forest health, it has slowly gained traction and attention. So uh, I'm not, of course, the only lab working with LAMP. There are many others. And um, especially in Europe, they're very, very active with it. That's, that's where I started as well. That's where I learned it first time. So um, UK has been uh, developing several probes, Sweden, Italy. There's many, many different countries that have uh, worked on LAMP primers for forest uh, pathogens or, or forest system. Um, and so we have, I, I know they are out there for um, ash dieback, heterobazidion, there is for um, Xylella, uh, we developed the one for pitch gunker, we developed one for um, brown spot needle blight and the two dotus species. There are some for insects, uh, forest insects, there is for pinewood nematode for sure. And I don't remember all on top of my head, but there is a very long list. So it is something that has gained traction in its. Um, um, for in forest pathology and more and more it's getting used. So, um, and more and more there will going to be need for it because I mean, people saw the use of it, how it's conveniently, uh, brought to the field or even when you use it in the lab. Um, I mean, most of the direction we do it in the lab, we don't necessarily bring the little tool out in the field, but it's, uh, for us it's convenient because it's very rapid. Um, uh, it's, it gives you a result in about 20 minutes, which is really, um, a big improvement if you compare with um, real-time PCR that takes up to two, two hour and a half. And the sensitivity of LAMP is comparable of that one in real time. So it's more sensitive than normal PCR in what a quarter of the time. So that's that's a, that's a big advantage for us so that we can like run a lot of samples in a little time. And one thing that I forgot to mention, because it's meant to be field um I mean, one of the very good characteristics is that it's very um, resistant to inhibitors. And so you can use crude DNA extract. You don't have to have clean DNA, which sometimes it's what takes a lot of time to get, like extracting extract. and purifying your, your extract. It's time consuming. While LAMP, we use a protocol that uh, was developed by an Australian group. And it's, what, 30 seconds of extraction. You, it's like so quick. And it's raw extract. It's fine. But for LAMP, it works. And so in 30 seconds, you extract your DNA. And in 20 minutes, you get the reaction. So that's that's very rapid and so that's to us at a great advantage uh, so
0: basically 100 you can do this in the field
1: yeah it's meant to be it's the extraction is pipette free the reaction can be pipette free it all it's all based on uh dipstick paper dipsticks and so it's you go in the field you, we have there are several brands that produce those. so um you don't have to stick to around that we have, but we have a little instrument like this, it's called genie. It's like, literally, this is the dimension and we can bring that in the field with us, it's battery operated. All the extractions is pipette free. You bring your reaction strips, you get the sample that you want to test. You extract in 30 seconds, a minute is really, really rapid and you run it there in the field and, and you have a response yes or no, um, in 20 minutes now. It only will tell you yes or no. You cannot do any further processing out of that. So that's one of the limitations of LAMP. You cannot sequence. You cannot do any post-production work. You just just gonna tell you yes or no. It's your target organism here. Yes or no.
0: Well, yeah, but that, I mean that still has uh, massive applications when we're talking about diagnostics. When we're talking about invasive species. When we're talking about uh, you know early detection or rapid identification in, in different contexts, right? Not, not only in exactly. research, but, um, you know, surveillance, uh, professional arborists, landowners, has a, a big range of, of applications for sure.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, just being able to confirm the presence or the absence, like of an invasive species or a quarantine species, that's that's uh, very, very important. This technology, I mean, it's not, uh, of course, forest health has been one of the application, but, um, it's very much used in veterinary science in medicines. Um,
0: yeah, I was going to ask if, if like, where was this technology actually developed? Uh, I, I imagine this was brought to forest health, but also maybe in, in crop science as well. But, uh, when, in what field this was actually developed?
1: The first time I heard about it, it was in veterinary, uh, but I think it was developed like in, uh, yeah, biology, human health, and, and veterinary. Yes, that's interesting. That's the first speaker that I remember out of it.
0: Yeah, and and what are some of the the projects that you are kind of like started looking into or actively working um, regarding to to uh, you know introducing this this method in in, in terms of uh, diagnostics?
1: Yeah, so right now we are working on oak wilt. We're trying to develop a, a oak wilt probe, and uh, we're almost wrapping up with that. So hopefully it will be available soon. And so this is this is one of the latest one that I'm working with uh one of my students, actually two of my students. But I also um at the same time I'm also working in a non-forest related field. Uh, one of my students is from wildlife sciences mm-hmm. and she's developing a probe for um the detection of um um neurotoxic cyanobacteria that grows on an invasive weed. And so completely different application, but still very um useful and powerful. So um, we 're trying to see if we can detect the channelnobac bacteria before it becomes uh before it start producing the, the neurotoxin and and this is uh, at the base of a, a very important disease that it 's yeah. up to the chains, it goes up to eagles so it 's very it 's a very interesting problem it 's a problematic issue here in the south yeah. yes
0: and you know thinking about the the role of lamp as you know how it 's or, or how we traditionally approach forest health issues, forest health di- diagnostics. I'm wondering how do you see this tool kind of like being implemented in you know future decades, right? Right right. now it's something that has been recently tried to be developed, implemented in, in some pathogens, in some areas, some insects that you were, were mentioning, but how do you see this kind of like moving forward in the next couple of years? <sighs>
1: yeah so the thing of lamp, and and when i try to um, talk of at, at, um with newer colleagues or, or when i try to um, even with the funding agencies is that the let's say the the work that goes into creating an assay it's it's a lot it requires a lot of work a lot of testing but once the assay is created the actual implementation of it it's very easy it's very user friendly. And so you don't need particular training to be able to perform LAMP. And that's what I'm I've been trying to do. So ideally, uh, that would be my hope. Um we could train professionals in being able to do the reactions. As anybody had learned to do a nozzle swab when we were in COVID time, you know, it didn't yeah. take a PhD to be able to do one of those reactions. LAMP is very similar. Once you have all of course It takes a lot of work to get to that stage. But once you're at that stage and and it's all developed, it's very, very easy. So I'm actually performing um, a lot of trainings on the techniques to professionals. We've done a couple of workshops. They were um, funded by NIFA. And um, we're we're trying as much as we can to show to practitioners how easy it is Mm -hmm. so that if they learn, then they could be the one running it without having to ever get back to me just buying there, some of those kits are already commercially available and we're in contact oh, okay. with some of those companies so the idea would be uh say for the oak wilt once we have developed it and published and it's validated and everything we could work with some of those companies so that they would produce the kits. and those kits could be could go directly to arborists to different city mun- uh, municipalities so that they never have to get back to me they could do it themselves I'm happy to provide like a one-time training once in a while, and then people go and do the test by themselves. And so to, this would improve so much surveillance. In cities, if we're talking of urban diseases mm-hmm. like oak quilts, but um, think of if people learn to use it at a port of entries where you could screen for Something. invasive uh, pathogens or even invasive weeds, seeds, and stuff, anything that you don't want to get through and then you can detect in a molecular way. It could be screened by, uh, yeah, Port of Entry
0: Inspection uh, Officers. Is there any example I can think of, of, you know, particular ARIA, it doesn't have to be specifically for Forest Health, but that this technology has actually been implemented into, you know, commercial kit that uh, people or a specific institution will use?
1: The um, Phytophthora ramorum test, I think, um, in UK has been commercially okay. available. There are companies uh, that you could buy, like the the kit for the Uh, uh it, it was a big problem in UK. That's what they were working on when I was there learning the technology. They were working a lot on this amorum detection. And I think to remember that there were already some um, lateral flow device
0: mm-hmm. with
1: the lamp um, primers all loaded up that um, you could buy and, and you could do yourself in the field, basically. All nice all prepared and so um i'm pretty sure that i don't remember on top of my head of others in forest health world of course yeah. if you go at other like COVID, yeah those are already yeah available exactly, and, and you can exactly. buy them but um in first health i pretty remember the uh pretty much remember the one, um so causal agent and um i don't remember of others but they're right now trying to um for instance incorporate our um, assay on the lecanosticta chicola, so the causal mm-hmm. digital brown spot needle blight uh is the as one of the procedure recommended up by eppo in europe for testing of the pathogen so if it becomes like recognized even from agencies like eppo possibly people will start to implement it more and i was aware of that because they reached out to us to kind of ask some clarification to make sure it made sense uh, but i'm sure if yeah, reach out to me, there are probably other assays for other pathogens um, that um, are probably being included in the EPPO recommendations for diagnosis. And so that would be a good
0: yeah, actual absolutely, implementation absolutely. of it. Yeah. And, and, and even thinking, you know, this is kind of like a one step further thinking about the impact of this technology around the world. But thinking about countries where traditional costs for uh, diagnostics with PCR, or even qPCR, are kind of like prohibited, right? Um, Places where it's not always accessible to do these kind of like identifications. This could help a lot um, for early detection or surveillance or things like that. Yeah, uh,
1: definitely. Because like there are different ways of doing LAMP, uh, different ways of visualizing it. The one we use, we use this portable tool, but you could run LAMP without that if you want to. All you need at the end is a hot plate. And so there are many... uh, developing countries that are using it with the colorimetric assay version, mm-hmm. in which you really only need hot plate, So that is way cheaper, first of all. And it's, uh, you don't really need much technology there. And then all you have to do is look at, like with your naked eye, you see a, a change in color, usually from yellow to red or vice versa. Exactly. And, and you can assess the, uh, the outside that way. So yeah, it's very much used in many countries. Um, when and this was back at my uh, PhD times, so a little bit ago. But uh, a colleague of mine who was in the veterinary world, and he was uh, using GLAMP a lot. Um, he was doing training in Africa at the time for the use okay. of it. Um, because it was a technology that they could use there in their uh, veterinary clinic to quickly diagnose, I think, was some epizoic problem. at I- now veterinarian, don't remember. It's been <laughs> ages ago. But I remember that he was saying, I'm training them for LAMP because with like barely minimum equipped lab, this is something they could do because especially with the hot plate version of it, all you need exactly. is a socket of energy. And sometimes you could have battery operated once. And so that's all you need. And so this is really helpful for those places where you might not be able to have access to a real time PCR, fancy machinery and stuff
0: like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Katarina, I want to thank you for joining and explaining all of these. I think this is very interesting technology and hopefully we're going to see that being implemented more and more over the next uh, couple of years. Of course, we're only scratching the surface here on how this uh, technology works and, and how it could be used in, in many different fields as well. Uh, but if folks want to you know know more about your work, what where would be a good place to find um, your research, your products and stuff that you're working on?
1: Sure. Uh, well, they could uh, search out my uh, page at the University of Georgia, Wernell School of Forestry and Natural Resources, under my name, Dr. Caterina Villary, and uh, my email is cvillary at uga.edu, so they can also reach out to me. Uh, I'll be happy to direct them to more information or a specific um, assay is the need. But um, yeah, please uh, reach out if you have any other questions. And, and thank you very much for having me, Damien. That was very nice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining to this discussion with Dr. Caterina Villari talking about LAMP and how it's actually changing the landscape of pathogen diagnostics. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. As always, have an awesome week and see you in the next one.